isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt, then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Key Battles of the War of 1812. This is your host, James Early, as always. In our last episode, we looked at how the Americans tried for the third time to launch a major invasion of Canada. I entitled the episode, Third Times the Charm, with a question mark at the end. And we found out that despite some initial successes, the Americans were eventually forced right back out of Canada, right back into the U.S. So the third time was, in fact, not the charm. And, in fact, it would be the last time that the U.S. would attempt to invade Canada ever, not just in the War of 1812. Now, in this episode, the British are going to try to turn the tables on the Americans, and they're going to go on the offensive. They're going to take the war into the U.S. They're going to launch several invasions and raids in various parts of the U.S., including the very capital, Washington, D.C., and in this episode, I am once again joined by my good buddy, Steve Guerra. Steve, how are you doing, sir? I'm great, James. Thank you for having me on. Hey, it's always a pleasure to work with you. And one thing I have been remiss in doing is mentioning your podcast, Steve. I keep forgetting, so I think it's time we took a moment to give you a shout out. So you have two podcasts History of the Papacy, and Beyond the Big Screen. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about each one? Just kind of give us the Cliff Notes description. Well, the History of the Papacy is a history of the Church and Christianity from its very beginnings and even before that, and making its way, meandering its way to the modern day. So we look at issues of politics, obviously religion, history, theology, and just the general story of how Christianity was formed and then the role of the popes of Rome and the church in Europe and how that impacts the history of the world. And then in Beyond the Big Screen, my um, line is that we take a look at movies and the true background and history behind movies, as well as stories so great they should be movies. So I always talk with an, a guest who is really interested in a particular topic. So if people tune in and you really love American history, I think, James, you've done maybe four or five. Well, not including the gigantic four-parter on Gettysburg. So I <laughs> yeah. think you're up to about 10 now. So yeah, people, can- <laughs> Yeah, if you count each one of those as one, 
then that would be seven, eight, nine, I think nine. We've done like four World War, I mean, sorry, four Civil War related movies. And then we did a couple of World War II ones too. Yeah. So people, if you love American history, there's plenty of it for you in there and all sorts of other history, science, technology, a little bit of current events even. So there's a lot for um, really anybody if you're interested. All right. Thanks, Steve. So again, listener, check those out if you haven't already. I am a subscriber to both of the shows and I listen to them on a regular basis. Steve is a, a hardworking man. He puts out two episodes per week, most weeks on both of them. So that's four a week. I only do one, but really enjoyable content. He has great guests and you are going to love it. So check that out. The history of the papacy and beyond the big screen. Okay, Steve, where are we going first? Yeah, let's start talking. We've been mostly in the western end of New York, but the eastern end of New York, northeastern end is looking to get into the action now. Yes, it is. The British are ready to march into New York. In Montreal in the spring and summer of 1814, Sir George Prevost, he's been with us all along. He's managed to not die or be fired, which is quite a talent in this war. George Prevost was preparing an army that would launch a major invasion of New York State. Bolstered with reinforcements from the continent, including several of Wellington's generals, some of his second, third in command, he had 10,000 men at his disposal. 10,000 is a massive army for the War of 1812. Now, American Secretary of War Armstrong was not expecting this invasion. The only significant American force in northern New York at the time was 3,400 men under the command of Brigadier General Alexander McComb. Many of these men were new recruits. Some of his staff urged McComb to retreat, but he refused. He said, quote, the eyes of America are on us. Fortune always favors the brave, end quote. So very optimistic and very brave. On August 31st, Bravo crossed into New York. He issued a proclamation in which he promised to treat civilians kindly and urged them to sell supplies to the army. And some of the people were totally glad to do that. McComb sent skirmishing parties to slow the British advance, but they had little effect. Bravo arrived at the Saranac River on September 6th. And there the two armies skirmished while Prevo waited for the British naval squadron on Lake Champlain to defeat the American squadron there. McComb strengthened his defenses and called for reinforcements from New York and Vermont. What do you think, Steve? It's pretty amazing, this, this kind of firepower going on to a, uh, a small lake like that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about Lake Champlain and, and, and New York. You had some thoughts about that. Yeah, Lake Champlain, I think now we're getting in away from Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, which I mean, you had pretty much set them up. Those are inland seas, mm -hmm. whereas Lake Champlain, now we're talking about a battle that's on a more or less just a normal lake that you would normally think of. And all that firepower on a, on a lake, I mean, that must have been really something to behold back then. Yeah. And New York, you know, this... Th this part of New York hadn't seen any fighting so far in this war. You mentioned at one point that it wasn't a Warhawk stronghold in the war. In the first place, there was quite a bit of opposition. That, a lot of that was on the coast, but still, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. Yeah, I mean, pretty much New York has been fairly much ground, center, ground zero for the whole, a good chunk of the conflict so far. Yeah, but a different part of New York, as you mentioned, sure. 
So let's talk about Lake Champlain. The British had gained control of most of Lake Champlain the previous summer by capturing the American ships Eagle and Growler. I like that name, Growler. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine the ship going, Grrr. but since then, however, both sides had been building ships and each side had a squadron of about equal size. The British squadron, commanded by Captain George Downey, comprised the Confiance, which had 39 guns. That was the big one. That was Downey's flagship. You also had the Lynette with 16 guns, the Chubb with 11 guns. That was formerly the Eagle. That was that one of the two Americans that had been captured and converted to a British ship. The Finch with 11 guns. That had formerly been the American ship Growler. And 12 gunboats containing a total of 17 guns. The American fleet that was going to oppose them was commanded by Master Commandant Thomas McDonough, and it consisted of the Saratoga, 26 guns, and that was McDonough's flagship, the Eagle with 20 guns, the Ticonderoga, 17 guns, the Preble with seven guns, and 10 gunboats carrying a total of 16 guns. It was stationed at Plattsburgh Bay. At 8 a.m. on September 11th, the British fleet headed for the Americans, taking fire as they engaged. The Confiance attacked the Saratoga, and both ships fired several devastating broadsides against the other. Captain Downey was killed soon after the battle started, and McDonough was injured. All the guns on one side of the Saratoga were disabled, but Captain McDonough was able to turn the ship around, and it's kind of technical how he did this. He had these catching anchors. You'll have to read about that. I don't have time to go into the details, but basically... They used anchors and cables to just take the ship and just go flip it around so that the other side could fire. A fresh set of guns was brought to bear. The Confiance tried to do the same, but it was not successful. And the Saratoga repeatedly pounded the Confiance with broadsides with fire so intense that one British Marine claimed that the broadsides the British had taken at Trafalgar were, quote, a mere flea bit in comparison with this, end of quote. That's saying something. After two and a half hours of fighting, the Confiance's acting captain surrendered, and the other British ships soon followed suit. The British suffered 170 casualties to the Americans' 110. More significantly, they lost four warships and control of Lake Champlain. Later, the famous naval historian Albert Thayer Mahan wrote this, quote, The Battle of Lake Champlain, more nearly than any other incident of the War of 1812, merits the epithet decisive. That's pretty impressive. Theodore Roosevelt, who wrote a book called The The Naval War of 1812, he wrote that McDonough, quote, is the greatest figure in our naval history, end quote. And he called the Battle of Lake Champlain, quote, the greatest naval battle of the war, end quote. And that's pretty impressive when you think about, for example, the Battle of Lake Erie was that was no slouch. Ronald Utt writes this, quote, in her long and storied naval history before the War of 1812, Britain had never lost a squadron. Now, a year and a day after Perry's victory on Lake Erie, she had lost a second one to the Americans, end quote. I think you can't discount how important it was to control Lake Champlain, too, because it was the border of New York, New England. Mm -hmm. Lake Champlain, I'm not sure of all the geography, but it's not, they're not directly connected, but you can get pretty doggone close to Montreal all by water. There's some portages and then it's not too far from the Hudson River. So it's basically a, a highway of the 
early 19th century of getting from way far south to way far north. If you could hold that not huge body of water, that's you're in control of that whole area. Yeah, it's long and skinny, unlike like the Great Lakes are long and fat, I guess, or long and thick. They're, they're just huge. But yeah, this one, you're right. It's like a highway. It's it's the highway of the day. It, and when you, again, I've said this many times, but it bears repeating. The roads were so bad. There were no railroads, no super highways, no nothing like that. So that made a water, a body of water like this that stretches so over such a long distance. It makes it doubly, triply critical to have. So then we move on to a land battle that's kind of associated with this yeah. naval battle. Yeah, right next to it, the Battle of Plattsburgh, very close to Lake Champlain. While the naval battle was going on, General Prevo sent 4,000 men under Major General Frederick Robinson to try and get behind the American force under Macomb. At Plattsburgh on the west side of the lake, Robinson's men met a militia force of only 400 whom they briefly fought before driving them away. At this battle, the Battle of Plattsburgh, the British lost 160 casualties to 100 for the Americans. That's interesting. The British lost more, even though they won the battle. So that tells how scrappy the Americans were. Prevo, hearing of the British defeat on the lake, feared the American ships on the lake and or arriving militia might threaten his supply lines. So he ordered General Robinson to retreat all the way back to Canada. And along the way, about 260 British soldiers deserted. That, that's simply amazing. You know, they, they had this overwhelming force. They had way more soldiers than the Americans did at Plattsburgh. And they just say, mm, nah, go home, turn around and come back. Of course, I, I'm being oversimplifying and I'm kind of trying to be humorous, but the control of the lake meant everything. You know, he had all these American ships on Lake Champlain. The British ones had been captured or destroyed. And so what's to stop these American ships from just blasting away at the British soldiers on the land? So it sounds crazy that he would have retreated at this point, but it's actually the, the safe thing to do. However, Prevo was highly criticized for ordering this retreat. He was summoned to England to justify his actions, but he died in 1816 before he could do so. Donald Hickey writes, quote, as a result, instead of being celebrated as the savior of Canada, Prevo is remembered for his failures in the field, end quote. Now, the battles of Lake Champlain and of Plattsburgh were the last of the fighting on the northern front. After them, British, the Britain, or Britain or the British controlled Prey du Chien, Mackinac Island, and Fort Niagara, while the Americans controlled both banks of the Detroit River. Neither side had taken a significant amount of land, and neither controlled all the Great Lakes. Donald Hickey sums it up like this. Get, get your glasses ready, listener. Thus, after three years of fighting, the war on the Canadian-American frontier was a stalemate. End of quote. Three years of fighting, Steve. And what has it accomplished? Absolutely nothing, as the old protest song from the <laughs> 60s says. There's another song I'll work in. I just, you have to imagine that the commanders who are holding these little bits and pieces that are clearly not defensible and that are bargaining chips in the peace process, they know that they're, it's all going to be for naught, basically. I mean, it's just screaming to go to the, to go back to the status quo before the yeah. war, except for a couple of prizes like Mackinac Island or, you know, some of these things that might be a little bit bigger chips than others, but there, it really is like a, just a pure stalemate. 
James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exactly. Yeah, just. Lots of lives lost, lots of people who permanently disabled, lots of things blown up and all for nothing. New all right. England winds up getting into the game, though, finally. Yeah, that's right. So let's move on and see where we're going to go next. We're going to go to New England. Yes, as you said, 1812 and 1813, the Royal Navy had blockaded the coasts of the Middle and Southern American states. But it had, it had not blockaded the New England states due largely to their generally pro-British stance and their willingness to trade with the British. In 1814, the British did extend the blockade over New England as well. The extension of the blockade greatly damaged the U.S. economy. Exports, imports, and custom duties sharply declined. The total tonnage of American ships involved with foreign trade plummeted from about 950,000 in 1811 to only 60,000 in 1814. In November of 1813, the British Admiralty replaced Admiral Warren, who had been the overall British commander in North America, with Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane. And he's going to have a lot to say over the next few episodes. Admiral Coburn remained as, as his second in command. So it gets really confusing now if you read this. You have Cochrane and Coburn, who, which looks like Cockburn. So it looks like Cochrane and Cockburn, <laughs> but I'm glad he pronounced it Coburn. That at least gives us a little bit of vocal distance between the two, right? But still, remember, listener, Cochrane is now the boss, at least on the water. And Coburn is kind of his hitman, his second in command. It's kind of like he's his General Sherman to General Grant. All right. So the British began conducting raids on New England towns. In one such raid on, uh, Pedipog, I don't know if I said that right. It's now Essex, Connecticut. The British destroyed 27 ships and boats valued at $140,000. Artillery fire from British ships destroyed several buildings in another Connecticut town. Many coastal islands were cut off from the mainland, and they came to the brink of starvation. On Nantucket, the residents had to proclaim neutrality and cooperate with the British in order for the British to allow them to import food. 
So it's kind of interesting. It's like, we're Switzerland now. Yeah, Nantucket becomes Switzerland in this war. We're not on either side. They had to, though. had no choice. Still, other towns paid tribute to the British to avoid being plundered or destroyed. In July 1814, British soldiers occupied much of northern and eastern Maine, including over 100 miles of the coast. Many residents there swore allegiance to Britain, and about half of Maine would remain under British control until the end of the war. This is a part of the war you don't hear much about, but were there any precautions for these islands and areas where people were uh, either claimed neutrality, which is kind of a... I don't know what the right word might say, but it's a it's a little touch, a, a little borderline to all the way to, I mean, pretty much treachery close to treason. Was there any fallout from that after the war? Uh, not much, not much. There was forgiveness. There was some, some of these people ended up leaving and moving to Canada, but for the most part, not a ton. You know, I just realized this is a totally side note, but I've been saying Mackinac Island the whole time. It's Mackinac, just... I, Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Forgive me. (laughs) Take a drink every time I mispronounce something, and then you'll probably end up passing out under the table or something. Is that first? I thought it was Mackinac, but then I started to question myself. Is it Mackinac? I I just looked it up. It is. Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I'm sorry, listeners. Don't 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 be too mean to me about that. I'm I'm a Texas boy. (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce all this Yankee stuff. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, just kidding, just kidding. Trying to be funny, but probably failing. Uh, what else? Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Some fanatics might get a little angry with me at putting my what if hat on. But boy, that this could have gone bad. It couldn't it have if things had gone much, you know, where some of these places start going more towards leaning towards the British and New England. Things could have devolved pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, the New England was always very pro-British and much more so than the rest of the country. They had very close commercial relations. They had family in Canada. You know, the, a lot of, as we talked about the late loyalists, a lot of people from New England had gone to live in Canada. And so there were a lot of family, cultural and commercial connections. And the British knew that, you know, and that's, that's the reason they didn't blockade New England at first, because they wanted to keep up as much illegal trade as they could. There was a lot of trade between New England merchants and the British all throughout the war, despite the laws that had been passed against that. And the British, in some cases, even courted individual leaders in New England to try to maybe get them to come over to the British side and possibly even secede from the Union. Of course, nothing comes of that. But but it is definitely very interesting. It was, it was uh, a gamble on the British part, as you implied, yes. So now we're going to swing a little bit further south, or rather the British are going to swing a little south and begin raiding down there. Yes, Chesapeake 2.0. In 1814, the British military leadership decided to conduct another campaign of raids in the Chesapeake area to try and divert American attention from the war in Canada. General Prevost wanted retaliation for the American depredations in Canada. To prepare for the campaign, the British established a base on Tangier Island in the Chesapeake between the eastern shore of Virginia and the mainland. British Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane, who we just mentioned, he's the new head honcho of the British Navy in North America, and he was a lifelong naval officer. He was a Revolutionary War veteran, and he hated Americans. He No more Mr. Nice Guy. His predecessor, Warren, was much more conciliatory toward the Americans, but now the gloves are coming off with 
Cochrane. Cochrane issued an order for his commanders to, quote, destroy and lay waste such towns and districts upon the coast as you may find assailable, end quote. So that's, that's pretty harsh and that's pretty wide open. Just whatever you find that you can assault, burn it, destroy it. Cochrane also secretly told his subordinates to spare any places that offered to provide supplies for the British or to pay tribute. So it's almost like piracy in a way. After the 1813 Chesapeake raids, Congress had authorized Captain Joshua Barney to build a squadron of shallow draft barges, each armed with a single gun to counter the British ship's actions. Kind of more of your mosquito fleet here. And this fleet was ready to go in the spring of 1814. British warships searched for Barney's fleet, but they were unable to destroy it. By August, however, they were closing in and Barney ordered the flotilla destroyed to keep it out of British hands. I guess, um, I mean, none of this is going anywhere good. We might as well just dive into the next part where it gets really bad. Yes, things are about to reach an all-time low here, uh, at least for the Americans. Here we go. Remember that we talked last episode about how there's going to be some major burning? It's coming. It's just about to happen. All right. British forces were operating perilously close to Washington, but Secretary of War Armstrong did not think the British would attack the city. He thought it was of little strategic significance. President Madison was also slow to act. He waited until July 1st to create a special military district around Washington. He put General William Winder in command of the district. Winder had only 500 regulars in the area. That's not very many, 500. He called for militia to reinforce him, but they were slow to come. He spent more time inspecting the surrounding area than in planning a strategy of defense. On August 19th and 20, the British landed 4,500 men at Benedict, Maryland. They quickly marched up the coast to Upper Marlboro, then to Bladensburg for where he would be able to approach Washington from the northeast. By now, the capital was in a frantic state. Winder ordered the river bridges across northeast of town to be destroyed. Secretary of State James Monroe conducted scouting missions on horseback and militia was called out. It's got to be the only time in our history that our Secretary of State has gone out and like, inspected the troops and later he's going to rally the troops. By now, there were about 600 total American soldiers. They were deployed in three lines facing the eastern branch of the Potomac but in such a way that they could not support each other. President Madison arrived to personally oversee the fight. Then on August 24th, the British army appeared and began crossing the river, which was shallow. The temperature was about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The British flanked the first American line, forcing it to fall back. As they approached the second line, Winder ordered it to fall back and panic set in. The attack turned into a rout. It was later called the Bladensburg Races. <laughs> So who can get out of there faster? The British use of Congrave rockets also added to the Americans' terror. Ian Toll calls the Battle of Bladensburg, quote, by far the most ignominious defeat ever suffered by an American army in the field up to that time and ever since, end of quote. In other words, he's, he's calling it the, wor the most embarrassing, I guess, defeat that the U.S. Army has ever suffered. That's saying something. It sure is. And yeah. The British then pushed back the third American line, and by 4 p.m., the British controlled the whole battlefield, although they had taken 250 casualties to the American 70. By this time, most Washington residents, military and civilian, had fled the city. 
In the White House, Dolly Madison ordered the removal of much government property, including a famous portrait of George Washington before fleeing. It's a great story. They had to break the frame. They couldn't get it out. Very, they're having trouble getting it down, getting it out of the frame. So they just broke the frame and rolled up the canvas and took it. President Madison, along with James Monroe and the Attorney General, fled to Virginia. At 8 p.m., the British marched into Washington. A group of officers entered the White House. Finding a supper prepared, they sat down and ate it. After the meal, they took souvenirs and then set the building on fire. Because that's what you do in the War of 1812, right, Steve? What else would they? I wouldn't expect anything else. When in doubt, burn it. And before long, the White House had burned to the ground. Nothing survived but a shell. The British also burned the Capitol building, which at the time held the Library of Congress. So there goes the Library of Congress and the buildings that held the departments of Treasury, War and State. So that's a huge chunk of majorly important buildings. The Washington fires burned all night. The glow could be seen 40 miles away. In less than four days after the attack began, a sudden, very heavy thunderstorm, possibly a hurricane even, put out the fires. It also spun off a tornado that passed through the center of the Capitol, setting down on Constitution Avenue and lifting two cannons before dropping them several yards away and killing British troops and American civilians alike. Following the storm, the British troops returned to their ships, many of which were badly damaged. President Madison returned to the city on the 27th. He was heavily criticized for the burning of Washington. Someone wrote on a wall, quote, George Washington founded this city after a seven years war with England. James Madison lost it after a two years war, end of quote. <laughs> That's harsh, huh, Steve? It sure is. But uh, they're not wrong. Anyway, even more blame was dished out on Secretary of War Armstrong who ended up resigning his office. President Madison made James Monroe acting Secretary of War. So Monroe is wearing two hats now. He's Secretary of State and Secretary of War. Let's give a little mini biography of James Monroe. Monroe had fought in the Revolutionary War, being wounded at Trenton. He had been a delegate from Virginia to the Confederation Congress. He'd been a U.S. Senator, Minister to France under Washington, Minister to the U.K. under Jefferson, Governor of Virginia and Secretary of State since 1811. Pretty impressive resume, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, what else could he possibly do? What else? Well, we'll <laughs> find out in a few episodes uh, when we talk about people's post-war careers. How's that for suspense and foreshadowing? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> exactly. All right. So the British burning of Washington was heavily criticized, not just in America, but in Europe, and even among some members of the British Parliament. Most British, however, considered the burning of Washington a fit reprisal for American depredations in Canada. So all that burning that the Americans had done, they burned York, they burned several other British towns and settlements. Those chickens have come home to roost, haven't they, Steve? James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Doctors endorse it. Nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatron Healthy Weight Loss. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calatron. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 35 inches and 45 pounds. Calatron contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calatron promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatron has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free, plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BATTLES to 30605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Once again, text the word BATTLES, B-A-T-T-L-E-S, 30605. You'll be glad you did. They were some of the most powerful men who've ever lived. They waged war, forged peace, and altered the fates of billions of people. And yet, they were just as human, just as flawed as you and me. They were the presidents of the United States, and they are the subjects of the history podcast, This American President. In each episode of This American President, we explore how flawed men have managed this awesome responsibility. To listen now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search This American President on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, I mean, what a nightmare. I wonder, though, what was the real strategic... Did they honestly think, the British think, that that would be kind of like in the European mold, take the capital and that's that? Or was it really just a raid and a, a slash and burn? I think it was the second thing you said. I, the British had learned that Americans do not necessarily surrender when you take their capital. See Revolutionary War for more on that. So I, I think it was just, I think it was a terror campaign. I think it was their way of telling the Americans, we can go wherever we want, whenever we want, we can burn down whatever we want. But no, Washington was definitely not some area of great strategic or military significance. It was still a relatively small town at this time. Uh, they're they're, they're going to go for the real prize after this. And if I'm not mistaken, the White House, that's still the hull or the husk of the White House they rebuilt. Was that a new Capitol building that we have now? I believe so. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe they started from scratch with the Capitol. Listener, if I'm wrong, let me know. And then we move on because like you were saying, the, the real prize and probably as fun's not the right word, but as exciting as Washington being burned, the, really the more of the meat of, the, of this episode and this whole period right now is what goes on at Baltimore. Right, yeah. Back in this day, Baltimore, it was the third largest city. It was the, you know, it was, and it was, it was a huge city, big commercial center. It also harbored many privateers and it was a center of anti-English sentiment. We saw the Baltimore riots in one of our sidetrack episodes a while back. It was very pro-war, pro-Republican and anti-British. 
Walter Borneman writes this, quote, Baltimore was the acknowledged commercial hub of the mid-Atlantic states. An attack against Baltimore would be an attack against the American jugular. So again, this is the, this is the real prize that the British wanted to bag. If they could take Baltimore, the Americans would be in big trouble. You know, they'd be in danger of having the whole country cut in half. Now, Samuel Smith, who was a U.S. senator and a major general in the militia, had been organizing the city's defenses since 1813. By mid-1814, he commanded between 10 and 15,000 men, most of whom were busily building earthworks around the city. I like what Walter Borneman says. He has a really good way in his War of 1812 book. He's very pithy. You know, he's, he says a lot in a few words. He says this, quote, whereas Washington ran, Baltimore dug. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. So Baltimore is going to fight. They're going to stand and fight. On September 12th, British General Robert Ross and his army of 4,000 landed at North Point, Maryland, just southeast of Baltimore. They were opposed by 3,200 American militia under Brigadier General John Stricker. In the battle that resulted, called the Battle of North Point, the Americans lost 215 men, while the British lost 340, including General Ross, who was killed. But the British held the field. After North Point, the British continued their march toward Baltimore. On the 13th, they could see the city's defenses. They were unable to lure the Americans out or to get any naval support, so they decided to withdraw for now. Meanwhile, Admiral Cochrane had sailed up the Patapsco River to try and bring the support that the British Army needed. In their path was the very strong Fort McHenry, which protected the entrance to Baltimore Harbor. In a 24-hour period from September 13th to 14th, the British ships fired 1,500 rounds at the fort, but only 400 hit it and damage was minimal. The British next put 1,200 men in barges to slip past the fort, but they were driven back by the shore batteries. In addition, the harbor was blocked by sunken ships. Because of these setbacks, Admiral Cochrane ordered his ships to withdraw. And just a fun fact here, a little interesting piece of trivia, the commander of Fort McHenry was Major George Armistead. He was the uncle of the later Confederate General Lewis Armistead, who fell in Pickett's charge. And if you've seen the movie Gettysburg, Armistead gets the silver medal for worst beard. He has his, the actor playing Armistead has the second worst beard after, of course, the epic failure of a beard that they slapped on Longstreet. <laughs> but anyway, just an interesting fact. All right. Back to seriousness now. During the bombing of Fort McHenry, an American attorney named Francis Scott Key was being temporarily detained on a British ship. He was so moved by the American defense of the fort that he wrote a poem called Defense of Fort McHenry. The poem was later set to a British drinking song and renamed, can you guess it, listener? I think I heard them say the Star Spangled Banner, Steve. That is correct. Too. The Star Spangled Banner. He was impressed by the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. The giant flag that flew over the fort remained overnight. It was there the next morning, and now it's in the Smithsonian. I had the blessing of seeing that flag about 15 years ago, the last time I was in D.C. It was really cool. Have you ever seen that flag? I don't believe so. Well, and you call yourself a good American. I know. I'm a little Come on, Steve. All right. Now, <laughs> you got to go up there and see it. So the failed attack on Baltimore was the end of the Chesapeake campaign. So the Americans held off. The Chesapeake campaign would prove to be the high water mark of the British counteroffensive in 1814. 
Can you hold uh, that battle of North Point and there's the British took more casualties, but they held the field so they could technically got the W for that. What is this whole idea of held the field? Well, it just means that you drove off the enemy and you weren't forced to retreat. So that's, as you said, it's, it's like getting the W, even if you lose more men or you may have other problems as well. You may eventually have to leave, but on that day you held the field. So you have the bragging rights. You have the, the you, have, you could be proud of the fact that we were not driven from the field. We stood our ground and we held on. That's very important, mainly from a kind of a morale standpoint in war, more so necessarily than, I mean, it's certainly important strategically as well. You think about, I always go back to the Civil War, you think about the Battle of Antietam where Robert E. Lee's army invaded the North and McClellan finds a copy of Lee's orders and he kind of hurries up there to try to stop him and he attacks him, but he totally blows the attack. And whereas he should have surrounded and captured or, or destroyed or both, you know, destroyed in the sense of making everybody surrender, he could have taken out Lee's army, but he blows it and Lee gets away. But they could at least say, hey, we held the ground. The other side retreated. We drove Robert E. Lee out of the North. We forced him to retreat. So it's Even kind though- of a way of saving face in some situations. <laughs> Yeah, because I could easily see that. Uh, I mean, in a lot of times, Washington could have maybe George Washington, that is, could have fought out and maybe held the field, but then lose too many of your guys. And then you can't fight the next day. Yeah, Washington had the sense to realize when when to stay and when to bug out. (laughs) I wonder what you think about this. I think in a lot of ways that this could be maybe the most important battle in American history. I mean, you've done a lot of battles in your day. Uh, key battles, you might even say, of American history. How do you think that this one maybe fits into the importance of battles that you've researched? You know, you you raise a good point. You could certainly make a, an argument. I don't know about the most important in American history. It's it's hard to compare a battle in the War of eighteen twelve to say a battle in World War Two or a battle in the Civil War or the Revolutionary War because the wars were so different and the battles were so different. But I would say this is probably tied for the most important battle in the War of 1812, for sure. I mean, it's huge because what if it had gone the other way? You know, what if they'd blown it like they did in Washington? What if this General William Winder had been in command of the Baltimore defenses? What if the British had taken Baltimore? They could have just kept marching, you know, right up through Maryland, Pennsylvania, maybe. Who knows what they could have done? But instead, they get stopped. And they get turned around and they go back and that's it. So, yeah, it is. It is, I would say, one of the most important battles in American history, for sure. And definitely one of the two most important in this war. We'll talk about the other one a little bit later. So we've had a we've talked about a lot of battles up to this point. What do we have coming up? Well, let's see. We have got we're going to go south. We're going to go further south. We, We did a little bit of fighting in the south, but that was mainly the Creek War. Now we're going to do some more America versus Britain. The, the, Ameri- the British are going to get on some ships and try their luck around the Gulf Coast. They've got their eyes on Mobile. They've got their eyes on the incredibly important city of New Orleans. So that's what we're going to do next. We're going to, the next episode is called the 1814 Gulf Coast Campaign. We'll see what happens as they focus their efforts on the city of New Orleans. 
Join us next time when we talk about that. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Key Battles of American History is a proud member of the Parthenon Podcast Network, which includes several other podcasts, including History Unplugged by Scott Rank, Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy by Steve Guerra, This American President by Richard Lim, Eyewitness History by Josh Cohen, and Vlogging Through History by Chris Mowry. If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to check out these great podcasts. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast, as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. And fourth, you could join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C., Anna Concepcion Castro, Brandon Cuckler, Mike Leslie, Bob McCullough, Melissa Mueller, Doug Pergram, and Jacob Thomason. Captains Ryan Apashian, Blue Ridge 201, Alex Calabrese, Alex Coombs, Grant Holmstrom, Jeff Henley, Stephen James, Jose Martinez, Tim Moon, Mike Rollison, David Santee, and Michael Severino. And to Lieutenants Patrick Brennan, Sean Burrell, Matthew Christensen, Ronald Cohen, Craig Didier, Roger Douglas, Scott Hendricks, Who's Your Daddy, David Lueza, and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. Key Battles of American History